We are in the book of Colossians, as Joe said in that video, we're working through the text uh, in order, and we are coming to chapter 1, verse 15 today. Um, and uh, this, is, this is kind of the linchpin passage of this entire book. This is the thesis statement uh, of this book. This is the key to understanding the entire book of Colossians. And I was thinking about kind of key cornerstone ideas, uh, and I was thinking about uh, my wife and I's wedding anniversary. Uh, we just celebrated last month. We've been married 13 years now, which is great. Yep. Uh, thanks. It's mostly her. Um, we received tons of advice. I don't know if you did, but when you were getting married, when you were engaged, uh, you, everyone wants to tell you the secret to marriage, to a long and healthy and happy marriage. They give you all the advice in the world. They'll tell you all the secrets, all the keys. They'll talk to you about finances. They'll talk to you about communication. They'll talk to you about other stuff. You know, there's all sorts of advice that people will give you about marriage. Uh, and uh, I am a veteran. I'm a professional at being married. I'm really good. I've, I've figured it all out and learned all of the secrets to marriage. And uh, my wife and I's marriage is perfect and has no issues and everything is wonderful. She doesn't think that joke's funny for some reason. Um, what I found out, though, it didn't take very long, is that there's really one core piece of advice for any married couple that kind of makes everything else go. And so here's the secret. We're not in a marriage series, but I'm going to give you just a little bonus mini-sermon here at the beginning, right? The secret to a healthy, happy marriage is to put your spouse first, right? It's to put them first, to put their needs above your own, to, to look out for what they want. This is what Ephesians is all about. Ephesians chapter 5 is all about laying down your rights for one another and serving one another. Um, and so the key, if you really want a happy marriage, joy-filled marriage, is to put your spouse above your own, their needs above your own. And if both spouses seek to do that, right, everything kind of works, doesn't it? Uh, the problem is, is that we are um, selfish, sinful people, and we don't always remember to do that, do we? This, this idea, this keystone idea of marriage is, is, is helps us kind of understand this little passage in Colossians. This keystone idea that unlocks the rest of the book for us, that unlocks really much of the Christian life for us. And so uh, with that as an introduction, let's jump into the text. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 15 through 23 this morning, and then I'll pray and then we'll see what the Lord has to say for us. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, says this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in, th in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 23, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message of the gospel. We thank you 
for it being proclaimed here in the text of Colossians, for it being proclaimed throughout all of Scripture, for it being proclaimed throughout all the history of the church. And God, as we dive in to study that message again this morning, would you encourage us with it? Would you challenge us with it? Would you draw us to yourself with it, Father? Lord, your word is powerful. It's life-changing. It has the ability to cut straight to our heart. And so I pray that you would have it, have it do its thing this morning, that it would speak to us in power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a note-taker, three points once again today. Christ, the creator. Christ, the redeemer. And Christ, the reconciler. That's kind of how this passage is structured, Paul. It's going to talk to us about who Jesus is, what, what he's about, what he came to do. And it's going to help us understand better who Jesus is. And he is these three things, Christ the creator, the redeemer, and the reconciler. But before we get into those points, just to, uh, to help us understand what's going on in here, we have got to understand the point of this letter. Why did Paul even write this letter? What's the point of Colossians in the first place? And the reality is Paul is writing this letter to this church at Colossae to combat false teaching that has sprung up in this young church. There's some kind of false doctrine that's spreading in this church, and Paul has caught wind of it, and so he's sending this letter to this church to say, hey, I've heard about what's going on here. Here's how we fix it. Here's what you need to know. And this section, as I've said, especially verses 15 to 20, is the thesis statement for his entire argument against this false teaching. Now, what's interesting is that Paul doesn't say, and scholars can't agree on what the false teaching is. It's pretty clear there's some false teaching going on, but it's not clear what it is. I think that's cool. I think the Lord wants to use this, this text, this book, this passage to combat any and every kind of false teaching that we may encounter. And so that's what's going on here. Paul's writing this, and he's saying, hey, and now that I've, the introduction to this letter is over, we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of it, if you will. And here's what you've got to know. Here's what I'm going to build my entire argument on about Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, first, Jesus is our creator. Jesus is the creator. Christ the creator. It says he's the image, in verse 15, of the invisible God. Firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He goes on and on. He says, all things were created through him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Man, can we just take a step back from this for a little bit and just look at this text and just let it kind of wash over us as we take in what Paul is saying, what the scriptures are saying about who Jesus is. It says he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus shows us what God is like. The scripture says no one has ever seen God, but Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus is God putting on flesh and walking among us. Fully God and fully man, he's the personification of the eternal God. Then it says he's the firstborn of creation. Now, this is important and, and worth explaining a little bit. Firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus was created, okay? Jesus was not created. He's existed into eternity past, will exist into eternity future. He has, there's never been a moment where Jesus did not exist. What Paul is talking about when he speaks of firstborn is a, is a place of rank, of authority, right? You guys are familiar in ancient cultures, the firstborn son was the, was the premier family member, the premier descendant of any kind of king. And he would be turned over the kingdom or, or ruling authority over his father's kingdom. The same is true for Jesus. He is first among everything in the world. 
We know this is true because verse 16 goes on to explain that Jesus created the world. Jesus created the entire universe. He can't also be the creator if he was created. We know this from the rest of Scripture as well. Genesis chapter 1 even hints at this fact. In its account of the creation, Moses writes of God, he says, Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps the earth. See, even from the very beginning, there's this hint of this eternally existent Son, this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creating the world together, creating man together. This text goes out of this way, this passage we're looking at, goes out of its way to show that Jesus created all things. In these two verses alone, the phrase all things is used four times. It's used six times in some variation in this short little passage we're reading together. And then if, if that wasn't enough in verse 16, he, he spells out what he means by all, all things. Look, look with me at your Bible. Look at verse 16. It says, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, all things, he says. Is he, is he clear? Jesus has created everything. But it doesn't just say that all things were created by Jesus. It says they were also created for Jesus. See, this world and everything in it, and even things beyond this world and everything in that, exists not just because Jesus created it, but it exists for him, for his glory. And not only that, Jesus didn't just create all things. He didn't just create all things for himself, but then it says he holds everything together. This is just staggering. Our, our brains can't even comprehend that every atom and cell in the universe sticks together because Jesus says so. That everything in your life and everything in my life, everything we can imagine exists because Jesus wants it to exist and it stays existing because Jesus says, I'll let it go another day. The picture that Paul is painting for us of Jesus is not of some random guy born in Nazareth who happened to say some interesting things or have some cool proverbs that he spouted as he was teaching. The picture is of an eternal God who's so powerful that he can speak the world into existence and has so much power that he can hold it all together at every moment of every day. We're meant to marvel at Jesus' power and authority here. We're meant to look around the world at its beauty and splendor and recognize that Jesus is responsible for all of it. It's the most beautiful place that you've ever been. I mean, just think about it right now. I've been thinking about Colorado a lot. I went to Colorado last January. It was negative 10 degrees the first day I woke up there. And this time of year, that sounds pretty nice. I know of two families in our church that went to Alaska last month and didn't bring me with them. We'll talk about that later. I will say, the Apostle Paul says in another letter, that he who has taught the words share in all good things with him who teaches. <laughs> Neither here nor there. They went to Alaska. I would imagine Alaska was beautiful. You'll have to ask them. If you're friends with them, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen their pictures probably online. Alaska's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Staggeringly beautiful. Where's the most beautiful place you've been? Is it a mountain? Is it a, is it a beach? Is it some far off jungle? I don't know. But a passage like this should cause us to think about that, to think about this world that we live in and go, Jesus made all of this and he sustains all of this. And it should make us marvel at him. The Bible wants us to see the incredible power and authority that Jesus holds. But there's a reason for it. The reason it wants us to see this, keep in mind, Paul's combating false teachers. 
is because false teaching, corruption of the truth of the Bible, it often goes a lot like this. It, they, they rarely just deny Jesus and say, no, don't follow Jesus. What they usually do is say, Jesus is good and you need this other thing as well, right? They say, Jesus is good, but if you give a little bit more money, you'll find some more power, some more spiritual power. Jesus is good, but if you have an extra measure of faith, then there'll be more power and authority for you. Maybe Jesus is good, but if you'll follow this ancient practice, right, you'll tap into a new level of spirituality. Have you heard teachings like this? They're subtle. They don't discredit Jesus altogether, but they just say, you need Jesus and a little bit more. And what Paul's saying, he goes, how can you have more than Jesus? There isn't anything more. Someone, apparently, the church at Colossae is spreading this false teaching, and Paul says, no, 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 no. You've got to see Jesus for who he is. You've got to understand his power, his authority, and his might. He's the creator God. He creates everything for himself, and he holds everything together. And here's what that also means. Just another, just a side point for us this morning that hurt me this, this week as I was thinking about this passage. If Jesus really is the Lord of the universe, then that means that I'm not, right? If the world really should, does center around Jesus, and he is the center of it all, and sustainer of it all, and creator of it all, that means that I can't be the center of the universe, and we live in a world and a culture that wants to tell you and I that we are the center of our universe, that we are what matters most, that we are what's preeminent, that our desires and wills and, and, and choices are what's most important. Most people don't say it quite that in your face, but that's the message, isn't it? You're the center of the universe and you, the world exists for your pleasure and your purposes. But Paul says here, all things were created through him and for him. That includes you and me. We're not the center of our universe. Jesus is. Our task isn't to get all that the world can give to us, but instead to live our lives for Christ because he's worthy. And he shows us why he's worthy in our second point, Christ the Redeemer. Look with me at verses 18 to 20. It says this. It says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul goes on to explain that not only is Jesus the supreme authority of the universe, but he's also the supreme authority of the church. Why? He gives us a few reasons. First, he overcame death. Jesus' lifeless body was put in a tomb on a Friday. We're sure it was lifeless because the spirit was run through his body to make sure that he was dead. He was laid in a tomb, tomb was sealed, and then on Sunday, three days later, he got up and walked out alive. Jesus overcame death. Secondly, Paul says he's God. He's God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time, he was God in the flesh. He's not some mere man with good teaching. He is the Lord. And finally, Paul says he died on a cross. He paid the price for our sins with his blood. Jesus takes his place as preeminent in the church because of what he did for the church. He purchased the church by his blood. And so if you put all this together, you get a God of the universe who died on a cross and rose from the dead in order to purchase a people for himself. It makes sense that he would be the head of the church. It makes sense that he would be the centerpiece of the church. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, speaking of Jesus, call him our blessed hope. And it says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says in this letter to Titus, Jesus gave himself up to redeem us. He is our redeemer. Now, when Paul's talking about the church, he's talking about the church in two levels. Bible students, you you may know this, but this is a good reminder. He's talking about the church globally, right? The universal church. Right here in this passage specifically, he's talking about the church. All believers, past, present, and future, who have ever put their faith in Jesus, they make up the church. But he's also writing this letter to a particular church in Colossae, right? He's writing to that congregation. And so the things he has to say to that congregation also apply to this congregation, 11428 McCormick Road. I'm learning the address. It's taking some time, but I'm getting there. This is for us, church. This applies to us. It means Jesus is in charge of this church, too. Not me, not any of our other pastors, not you. Jesus is the head of this church. He's the good shepherd. The other four of us are just the under shepherds. Jesus is the senior pastor, if you will, of this church. And it means that everything that we do as a church needs to be centered on Jesus. Churches are often very good at focusing on fellowship and relationships. Love that. Big fan of that. But the point of those relationships is to spur us on to follow Jesus better. It's not a social club. The church isn't meant to be a social club. We have those. You can go join the Rotary if that's what you're into. The church has a mission, and it's to point people to Jesus. And so our fellowship, our relationships should point one another to Jesus. Churches focus on community service. This is vitally important. We just said in the video, we did three Love Jacks events this, this month. Fantastic. Wonderful. We should keep doing them. These events are where we meet practical needs in our community. But let me tell you, church, they're a giant waste of time if we're not using them to point people to Jesus. And so our mission isn't just to make the community better. Our mission is to make the community better so that we can have conversations about why we care about our community. And we can tell them in that conversation we care about that community because Jesus died for it on a cross and they can have a relationship with him through faith. Churches are great places for preaching and teaching. It's a big part of my job here. What happens in life groups and some of the studies we talked about that are happening here. The Bible contains tons of good wisdom and advice and Proverbs, and you can follow much of the advice that's in the Bible about how to live, and your life will be better. And it'll be an enormous waste of our breath if we teach people how to live a better life, but not to know the bread of life in Christ. So our task, church, is to center all that we do on Jesus, on who he is and what he's done for us, because, as Paul is trying to show us here, he's worthy of it. A couple of years ago, I went on a trip with some friends, a guy's trip uh, to the mountains in North Carolina. And, uh, it was like two nights, we stayed in the cabin, great views, all that kind of stuff, And because it was a guy's trip, and we were in charge of the menu, uh, steak was the menu, right? So we went uh, to the grocery store, spent more money than our wives would usually let us spend on steaks. Um, and, and took them up there and fired up the grill. And uh, there was six or seven of us on this trip. And so we cooked the grills. We got a salad and potato as a side dish too because you're supposed to do that. Um, but the, the centerpiece of the meal was a steak. Ribeyes, fillets, whatever anybody wanted, that's what we got. So we, we cooked the steaks and um, uh, five of the six men on the trip liked their steaks cooked properly, which is sometime, somewhere between medium rare and medium well. If you like your steak well done, it's okay to be wrong. We can still be friends. There's one guy who liked to steak well done, and the chef that evening uh, wasn't able to make that happen for him. And so this guy 
he, he's eating the steak and he kind of cuts into it. And you can see his eyes get this big when he sees the pink inside. And so he, ta- he forces himself to take a bite of this very expensive steak. And he, he just can't do it. He kind of pushes the steak to the side. He eats his baked potato. He eats his little salad from a bag. And that's his dinner for the night. And the rest of us are appalled. We're like, what? you're wasting the, the whole point of the meal. And I would argue that a church that does all sorts of good teaching and all sorts of good community service and all sorts of good fellowship and fun and activities, but doesn't point people to Jesus, it's like having a $200 Ruth's Chris gift card and just getting the baked potato. We're missing the point. Jesus is the head of the church. He has purchased the church for himself through his blood and We are to build our churches on him. Thirdly, Christ is our great reconciler. I'm not sure reconciler is a word, but we're going to go with it today. Christ is the reconciler. Look at verse 21. It says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So thus far, we've said a couple of things, right? We've said Jesus is superior to all things in the universe because he created all things in the universe and he holds all things in the universe together. And we've said Jesus is superior in the church because he's redeemed the church for himself on the cross. This is where it gets really good. This great and mighty Jesus who went to a lowly cross like a criminal, this text says he did that for you. He did that for you so that you and I could be a part of his family. Verse 21 says that each and every one of us were alienated from God, it says, and hostile towards him. Those are hard things to hear. That's hard language to hear, but it's vital to understand The Bible is incredibly clear that there are only two categories of people in the world, those who are friends of God and those who are enemies of God. There is no middle ground. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, it's a long passage, but hang with me on it. It says this. It says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul's saying, hey, when we were far from God, we were enemies of God, we were opponents of God, we were hostile of God, in that status, Jesus died for us to reconcile us to him. Everyone begins, that's good. Everyone begins as an enemy of God. Everyone starts there, but not everyone stays there. We don't have to stay there. Jesus offers us salvation to any and all who would believe. He offers it freely that they can come, trust God, trust Christ for salvation, and be a part of the family of God. And it's the most important decision you'll ever make. Which camp do you want to be in, friend of God or enemy of God? We love to pretend it's a, there's a neutral, but we're deceiving ourselves. I've been 
I've been listening to this uh, biography on Audible, audiobook. I don't know if you guys are into audiobooks, but it's way better than sitting there reading. You can do it on the go. My wife loves it because I play them loudly in the house and drives her nuts. But I've been listening to this biography on Eisenhower, finished it this week, and uh, he's a general and a president for you young bucks out there. Walking us through kind of how the United States entered World War II. The United States did not want to fight in World War II. They wanted to stay neutral. They wanted to stay out of it and let, let the European powers and the Japanese powers and the Axis kind of go at it. And just England and France, you can fight your own war. We're going to stay over here across the Atlantic. And it wasn't until Pearl Harbor happened that the United States was forced into the war. But really all Pearl Harbor did was spur on the inevitable. The United States was going to go in that war because in a world war, with all of our allies at war, there's no way to be neutral. Many times people love to believe that there's a neutral when it comes to faith in Jesus. There is not a neutral. The Bible says, choose this day whom you will serve. This is another place I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose. The choice belongs to each and every one of us. And I would beg you, if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear me say this, choose Christ. He offers freely Salvation to any and all who would have it. Typically, reconciliation happens when there's some kind of compromise between two parties, right? You guys know the old Diamond Rio song? I start walking your way, you start walking mine. We meet in the middle. It's a compromise that happens. It's not how reconciliation happens with Jesus. He walks all the way to us, holds out his hand, and says, would you believe we can have peace because of what I've done on the cross? As I said at the beginning, this passage is meant to amaze us as we ponder who Jesus is and what he's done. The eternal creator of the universe who sustains everything by the word of his power, stepped down from that lofty position, put on flesh, lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our sins, purchased us by his blood and offers salvation freely to any and all who would have it if they'll just believe. But it's also meant, this passage, to help us keep focused on Jesus, not shifting one way or to the other, just like it says, steadfast here in verse 22. Verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Our task today, our response to this after we put our faith in Jesus is to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting. And so it's worth asking as we close, what tempts you to shift what tempts you to be unsteady in the faith? What tempts you to be off track and to lose your hope in the gospel? Is it a besetting sin that lures away your attention perpetually? Is it a friendship or a relationship that pulls you away from Christ instead of pushing you towards him? Is it a schedule maybe that's packed so tightly and so full that you don't have an ounce of margin to think about Jesus and what it means to follow him? Or maybe it's fear and worry about your life circumstances that are crippling to you. Maybe it's all of those things. All of these things work together to knock us off track. The greatest television show that was ever made was American Gladiators. <laughs> Came out in 1989, was on until 1996. I don't know how it ever went off the air. But if you're not familiar with American Gladiators, it's, uh, they would get these kind of somewhat average Joe contestants. I mean, they were usually in shape, um, so I wouldn't be allowed, but they would let generally uh, average people compete in these feats of strength and athleticism. But they also had these gladiators, these hulking, just giant, muscle-bound, definitely on steroids people who would compete against them, right? And you would score points by, by being, you know, competing to a certain degree, right? Best event by far 
in American Gladiators was the joust. So if you remember, and if you don't remember this, you should YouTube American Gladiators jousting when you get home. That's your application for today. They would stand them up on these tall pedestals. They were probably this high, maybe. Um, and, and they were, they, I don't know, three or four feet wide. Very small pedestal that they would stand up there. They had their helmet on and their pads, and they had these giant sticks they would use to knock one another. And the battle would be between these two guys, and you'd have to knock the other guy off of his pedestal. And they would just pummel one another until one guy knocked off. It was super fun to get some scrawny little dude up there against one of these just jacked gladiators and watch them just go to town, knock them way off the deal. I think about that as I think about this idea of being stable and steady and steadfast in our faith. As we live in a world that is pummeling us, trying to knock us off, trying to knock us down, trying to take us out. And Satan's going to use any and every means necessary to do it. And I, I wonder if a lot of us are standing up there, the scrawny kid, trying to battle, do our best to stay alive. And Jesus is going, hey, I'll fight this one for you. Why don't you just hide behind me? They're not knocking me off the pedestal. I'm stable. I created the pedestal. I'm not going anywhere. Our task, church, is to continue on putting all of our hope in Jesus. Not hope in ourselves, not hope in our finances, not hope in our government, not hope in our resources or our personality or our skills or our behavior, nothing, nothing. Our hope in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who will see us to the end. So whatever it is you're going through at this time, whatever you're, you're dealing with at this season that has a tendency to make you a little unsteady or unstable, I want to encourage you to cling to Jesus. Turn to him. Amen. Sometimes emergencies happen. Cling to Jesus. I'll close with that. That's a good ending. Church, I want to encourage you. Jesus is everything. He created everything for him, by him, through him, the Bible says. In him, we have our life and our being, and he wins in the end. And so let's hide behind him, cling to him as we walk through this life, stable and steady, putting all of our hope in the gospel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he truly is preeminent over and above all things in this world. All of our hope is found in him. All of our joy, all of our life is found in him. Would you help that to be a practical reality in our life? That as we wake up tomorrow, we would center our lives on him. We would go to work to honor him. We would parent our kids to honor him. We would love our spouse to honor him. We would care for our neighbors to honor him because Lord, Jesus, you are the centerpiece of everything. And so would you help us to live that and believe it with all of our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.